the B-I-B-L-E Yes, that's the book for me I stand alone on the word of God The B-I-B-L-E The B-I-B-L-E Yes, that's the book for me I stand alone on the word Hey, Bob, what are you doing? Uh, nothing. Just cleaning up a little. So today we are going to land the plane on this series, and if you haven't been with us for a series, I'll give you a really quick 30-second recap, but you can go back online or through our app or one of our uh, different channels, Roku, YouTube, wherever you watch things, and, and you can find us and watch this series. But as I've said over the course of the last few weeks, most of us know some stories from the Bible, but very few of us know the story of how we got the Bible. And I just think that's really important for this simple reason. It's important because if you don't understand how we got the Bible, you'll misunderstand what's in the Bible. It's so easy to dismiss or to, um, to discount the different stories in the Bible. It's so easy to disengage from the content. If you don't understand how we got it and you don't have the confidence that it really is true and it really is accurate and that you can, uh, you can accept it as that. Now, one of the things that makes this so hard, one of the things that makes uh, the Bible a little difficult and odd and different from other literature is the story of how we got the Bible doesn't start in the beginning of the Bible. You know, with any other book, you just start in the beginning, you start reading your way through, but that's not the way it works with the Bible. The story of how we got the Bible actually starts in the first century, and it starts at a specific time in the first century. It starts at a time when all the people who were following Jesus and believed he was the Messiah and believed he was God in human flesh abandoned him, they lost all hope because his body was dead, lying in a tomb. And at that point in the first century, there were no followers of Jesus. There was no such thing as a Christian. Nobody was following and nobody believed and nobody expected a resurrection. So for three days, there was no hope. And for three days, there was no story. And for three days, no one thought the story of Jesus would be worth telling. Because why do you tell the story of someone who claimed to be God in human flesh, and then you watch him die on a Roman cross and you see his body placed in a tomb, and that's the end of his story? Well, there's no, there's no reason, there's no motivation to tell that story. But on the third day, a group of ladies who were followers of his show up at the tomb. They do not show up at the tomb expecting it to be empty. They show up expecting to finish or, you know, properly prepare his body for burial. And when they get there, it is empty. And their first thought is not, oh, he's alive. Their first thought is somebody stole the body. That was the most logical, rational explanation for why his body was not there. And it took them and it took his other followers, eventually 500 different people, seeing him with their own eyes to believe that he died, and that he came back to life. But that event, the resurrection, sparked a flurry of activity that led to this movement that we now call the church. But in the midst of all of that, people began to say, oh my goodness, what just happened? This event and the life of Jesus surrounding this event 
we've got to record this now. We've got to pass this on to future generations. And so there were a lot of independent accounts of Jesus' life that were written by people who had been with him, who had seen things, who were eyewitnesses. And we have four of those today. They're the four that you're familiar with, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All sat down and wrote independent accounts. Two of these men were Jewish, two of these men were Greek, but they all wrote accounts of Jesus' life based on their eyewitness experiences with him and based on the eyewitness experiences of others. And then this message of Jesus, as we've talked about, began to spread. It didn't stay in Jerusalem, it didn't even stay in Israel. It began to spread to non-Jewish or Gentile people all around the Mediterranean rim of that day. And these Gentiles began to follow Jesus in large, large numbers. It wasn't long before they outnumbered the Jewish people who followed Jesus. And they began to take, these Gentile people began to take an extreme interest in the Jewish scriptures, in the sacred text of the Jews. But they didn't take an interest in it because they were interested in Judaism, the religion of the Jews. They took an interest in it because they wanted to understand the backstory that led to Jesus showing up on this earth. And they began to adopt these Jewish scriptures as their own and practice them in their, or use them in their own uh, practice of worship. And so what you ended up with there in the first century were Gentile people who had the four accounts of Jesus' life. They had the Jewish scriptures. And then they had correspondence from a few different individuals. The one that's most famous was a church planter. And you know him by the name of the Apostle Paul. But he actually was also known by another name, Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus is where he was from. Now, real quickly, let me just explain why he had two different names that people knew him by. Uh, Paul, or Saul, was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. He was actually, as he grew up, his early career was as a Pharisee. And we'll talk more about the significance of that in a minute. But Paul was part of the ruling religious power of the day there in Jerusalem and there in Israel. And Saul was his Hebrew name. It was his Hebrew name. But Paul was not just a Hebrew. This was very uh, unique in the first century. Paul was a Jew, or Saul was a Jew, who was also a Roman citizen. And because he was a Roman citizen, he not only had a Hebrew name, he had a Roman name, and his Roman name was Paul. And so as he began to travel throughout the Roman Empire to all of these different parts and places and share this message with Jews and Gentiles, he used his Roman name, Paul, and that's what we know him as, is the Apostle Paul. And you can talk to any type of academic scholar who's got any type of experience in this, and whether they're a Christian or not, they will all almost unanimously agree that the Apostle Paul shaped our Western civilization in ways that are as significant and maybe more significant than anyone else who's ever lived. When you begin to talk about the values that are the foundation for Western civilization today, our way of thought, the way we value life, the way we value the dignity and worth of other people, when you begin to talk about all of these, you know, the behaviors that are acceptable and not acceptable, the Apostle Paul, what he wrote in his correspondence, shaped Western civilization in a profound profound way. He is a really big deal. And yet, if he were here today, he would look at us and say, no, I'm not that big of a deal. And we would say, yes, you are, Paul. And we'd you know, try to make a case for why he was such a big deal. And he would push back on that and say, I'm not really that big of a deal. And the reason I know he would say that is because in a letter to Christians in Corinth, he actually makes this argument because they thought he was a big deal. And he makes the argument, I'm not a big deal at all. Look at what he had to say. He said, for I am the least of the apostles. In other words, Paul says, all right, guys, if you're making a list of all the apostles and the impact they made, you put me at the bottom of the list. If you're making a, you know, putting all the apostles in a line, you put me at the back of the line because I'm the least of all the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Now, this isn't false humility on his, point, on his part. 
But you and I, if we were there, and the Corinthians, they felt this way. They're like, no, 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 Paul, you're missing it. Like, you, you have had such an impact. If it weren't for you, non-Jewish people wouldn't know about the message of Jesus. We could make a case. If it wasn't for Paul, we wouldn't be sitting here today. But Paul would say, nope, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. To which would go, well, why? Why would you say that? And he tells us. He says, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, this is one of the things that makes Paul's story so fascinating. His early career was as a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he was as devout as they come. Matter of fact, Paul himself says, I was a Pharisee among Pharisees, which was his way of saying, if you want to rank all the Pharisees, I was at the top or near the top of the list. This was, I was a big deal when it came to being a Pharisee. I took it incredibly seriously. It was, it was what I devoted my entire life to. And when the movement that we now call Christianity, they didn't call it that back then. But when this movement began to start in Jerusalem, and when people first by the hundreds and then the thousands began to believe that Jesus died and rose again, and when you know, eyewitnesses started to say, I saw him, and I saw him, and I saw him, and this movement took off, well, Paul immediately stepped in. And Paul stepped in as somebody with a type A personality who realized real quickly, wait a minute, this isn't a good thing for our Judaism. This isn't a good thing for our religion. This is a totally contradictory and opposed to everything we believe. We don't think a Messiah came. They're claiming a Messiah came. This is a conflict of interest, so I'm going to shut down this movement. And that's exactly what he did, if you know much about his story. Paul got permission first in Jerusalem to begin hunting down the key members of the movement that we call Christianity. And he would have them arrested. He would have them tortured. In some cases, he had them killed. And then when he had done his work there in Jerusalem, Paul got permission to go to other places, such as Damascus and Syria, and begin to hunt down some of the key figures there that were spreading the message of Jesus. He was going to crush this movement that we call the church. And he was totally devoted to it. And I would say, just based off of his personality, Paul probably would have done it if it weren't for an extraordinary event that happened one afternoon as Paul was on the way to Damascus. And he sees Jesus and has a conversation with Jesus himself. And at that moment, he changes. At that moment, and this is so fascinating to me, at that moment, he goes from being the number one enemy of the church to its number one advocate. Now, this is the irony of it all. It's as if God was looking down from heaven saying, okay, all these guys who are following you, Jesus, listen, we've got a problem. They're all staying in Jerusalem. They're all staying in Israel. But I told them to take this message to all the nations. They're not going to do it. So we need to find somebody who's got the initiative and the drive and the passion to take this everywhere. And of all the people God could have picked, he said, well, look at that guy who's trying to crush our movement. Wouldn't it be incredible if we just flipped him and turned him around and got him going, spreading the message? And that's exactly what happened. God took the church's greatest enemy and turned him into its greatest advocate. Now, here's why I think that's so important for you and me, and then we'll move on. The reason I don't want you to miss that is because if there is room in God's family for Paul, there is room in God's family for you. It does not matter who you are or what you've done or what's going on in your past or your present or you know, how worthy you feel or don't feel. None of that matters. Because if there's room for Paul, there's room for you. If God had a purpose for Paul, after everything Paul had done, as you can see, Paul knew it was, it was awful. It was something that brought shame when Paul began to think about how he treated these people and the folks that he killed and the folks that he imprisoned, the folks that he persecuted. But if God had a purpose for Paul after all of that, he's got a purpose for you no matter what you've got going on in your life. So 
Here's what I want to do for the next few minutes. I just want, as we wrap up this series, I want us to talk about Paul because he has such a profound um, role in the story of how we got the Bible. And specifically, there are at least three, I'm sure there are more than three, but there are at least three things I want to point out, three contributions that Paul made to the story of how we got the Bible. I just want to take a few minutes to walk through it, and then we'll wrap this up. The first contribution is this. Paul wrote some of the Bible. Let's just start right there. You probably knew that, whether you were a church person or Christian or not. Paul wrote some of the Bible, but specifically, Paul wrote 13 letters of correspondence between himself and, for the most part, other churches, uh, largely churches he had started. Every now and then, he was writing to an individual. Paul wrote 13 letters we still have today, and they're part of what we call our New Testament. It is about, you take all of Paul's writings, it's about 25% of all the content in the New Testament the Apostle Paul wrote. And what's fascinating when you begin to get into this is how quickly the Christians at these different churches valued the writings of Paul. A church would receive one of these letters from him, and they considered it valuable and reliable, sacred and inspired scriptures, so they would treat it very carefully, and they would read it to the entire congregation. And then they would make, meticulously make copies of it, and they would pass it on to the other churches around so that everybody could get the insight that the Apostle Paul had on this, this event that we know of as the resurrection and the impact of what Jesus had come to do. And sometimes he would write to entire regions. Paul just, Galatians is an example. Galatians, Galatia is not a city. Galatia is an entire region. And Paul wrote to all the churches in that region and said, okay, here's a letter. You guys just circulate this among yourselves because you all need to know this information. So Paul wrote a considerable amount of the New Testament. And whether you're a Christian or not, some of what Paul wrote are things that you value. Some of the things that you care about today, some of the things that you believe today, well, they have their, their history, their foundation. They are rooted in some of the writings of the Apostle Paul. And if you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard the Apostle Paul, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, which he wrote. You've heard that read. But a lot of the things that you and I believe today are rooted in an explanation, in this correspondence from the Apostle Paul. The second big way that Paul contributed to help the story of how we got the Bible is this. Paul explains the relationship between the Jewish scriptures and what Jesus did. Now, I want to camp out here for just a minute. This is so important. As a Pharisee, nobody was better positioned to do this than Paul. As a Pharisee, Paul knew the Old Covenant. Paul knew the Old Testament. We talked about that last week. Paul understood the Old Covenant better than anyone. As a Pharisee, Paul would have in all probability had the entire Old Covenant memorized. He was an expert in the Old Covenant. And part of the reason that he persecuted the church is because he saw this message of Jesus as a threat, and rightly so. He saw it as a threat to the Old Covenant. He understood, even before he was a follower of Jesus, that Jesus had come to introduce something brand new that was a threat to his Old Covenant. And so he was going to protect that at all costs. But once he began, became a follower of Jesus, Paul began to understand that Jesus did introduce something brand new in the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And in his writings, he does a phenomenal job of explaining it. Now, the reason I want to camp out here for a second is because if you have ever struggled with the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, if you've ever looked at it and gone, I don't see how these two mesh. It's like there's one whole vibe over here in the Old Testament and there's a totally different vibe in the New Testament. You might have even said it this way. It feels like there's one type of God in the Old Testament and another type of God in the New Testament. Well, if you've ever felt that confusion or that tension, you need to lean in for just a few minutes because the Apostle Paul addresses that and there was no one on the planet in the first century who was more qualified, better qualified to explain the relationship between the Jewish scriptures and the new covenant 
than the Apostle Paul. So, let me start by explaining it this way. If Paul had somehow been able to be present when you received your first Bible, the way we talk about the Bible today, you know, the Bible, you got it as one book, chaptered and verse, mapped and wrapped. If, if Paul had been there when you had been handed your first Bible, I think he would have given you two pieces of advice. The first thing he would have said to you was this. You should read the Old Testament for information and motivation, but not application. That would have been the first piece of advice he would have given you. In other words, Paul would have looked at you and said, okay, when it comes to the Old Covenant, when it comes to the Old Testament, by all means, read it for information. Because there's some extraordinary information in there that will be helpful for you. There is information about God's purpose for the Jewish people and how he's been, you know, moving and proving his love for us from the very beginning of time. There's extraordinary information about how, how all these different dots connect and why, you know, when the time was just right, Jesus showed up. There's a lot of great backstory on the story of Jesus. You ought to read this for information. And Paul would say, you ought to read this for inspiration. You ought to read it for inspiration from the negative sense because you ought to read about the stories of how the children of Israel, the Jewish people, they followed God and then they stopped following. They followed God and they stopped following. And you see where they faced consequences and where they suffered because of some of their choices. You ought to read it and be inspired not to do some of what they did. And Paul would say you ought to read it and be inspired by some of the stories to see how in the middle of them being faithless, God was still faithful. You ought to read it and be inspired because there were moments and there were stories in there where they felt like God was nowhere to be found. But you see, he was there all along, that he never abandoned them, that his love for them was unconditional. Paul, I think, would say to all of us, you should read this for information. You should read this for inspiration. The reason I think he would say that is because that's what he said to the Corinthians. You can read this for yourself, but in 1 Corinthians 10, he's writing and explaining to them the relationship between the two. And this is what he says. He says, you ought to read the stories of the Jewish people and take them as warnings when they got things wrong and remember how God was faithful to them in the midst of all of that. Read it for information. Read it for inspiration. But Paul would say, do not read it for application. In other words, Paul would say, don't just read through it and go, okay, well, I guess I should still do the Old Covenant stuff. I guess I should still follow all the Old Covenant rules. I guess I should still live by all the Old Covenant standards. Because Paul believed this, and this is all throughout his writings. Paul, now remember, who was an expert in the Old Covenant, who had devoted his life as a Pharisee to the Old Covenant, who had it memorized, who was willing to crush the church to protect the Old Covenant. Once Paul understood what Jesus had done, Paul said, Jesus landed the plane on the Old Covenant. It applied to the Jewish people up to this point, but once Jesus came, he introduced something brand new. The Old Covenant doesn't apply to you anymore. So you should read the Old Covenant for information, you should read it for inspiration, but don't read it for application because you're not required or expected to apply that. It's not necessary to live under the Old Covenant any longer. Instead, you should live under this new covenant, this brand new thing that Jesus introduced. And that would be the second piece of advice I think he would give us. That you should take your application cue from Jesus' new covenant command for you. So as people were talking to Paul and they were saying, Paul, we're, this, all, this whole thing's brand new. And they were, especially the Gentiles, they were living in a culture where so many things were permissible. And to live and to follow the teachings of Jesus was so countercultural. So they would look at Paul and say, okay, we don't know, we don't understand. Help us understand how this looks and how we're supposed to treat you know, our spouses. Because in culture it says one thing, sounds like you're saying something else. How are we supposed to manage what we've been given in terms of our money and our possessions? Because in culture we do one thing, but... You keep saying something else. Help us to figure out how to parent because everybody parents this way in our culture, but 
I feel like you're telling us you should do this differently and how should we relate with one another in terms of friendships and when it comes to work and bosses and employees and on and on and on. Paul said, I'll tell you how. You figure out how to live. You take your application cues from Jesus' new covenant command for you. And if you've been around here for very long, we've talked about this quite often because it is so central to how those of us who follow Jesus are to follow him. When Paul talks about Jesus' new covenant command, What he's talking about is the simple, singular command that Jesus gave his apostles on the night of his arrest. He said this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Now, again, it sounds so common to us, but this was revolutionary to them. Because Jewish people in particular, who had grown up under the Old Covenant, had grown up operating by this principle. The old covenant principle was eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. You do it to me, I'll do it to you. That's how we keep people from doing things they shouldn't do. They have to suffer the consequences just like they inflicted on someone else. And then, in the first century, there had been introduced this idea of the golden rule. We all know the golden rule. You should do for others, treat others the way you want them to treat you. Do for others as you would have them doing to you. But what Jesus did on this night of his arrest is he said, guys, you've lived your whole life by the old covenant, by the eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That that doesn't apply anymore. I don't even want you to live by the golden rule. I want you to live by an entirely new rule. Andy Stanley likes to refer to it as the platinum rule. I love that uh, visual image. I mean, it's just a a rule that goes to, to the next level. Jesus said, you don't just do to others as you want them to do to you. You do to others the way I have done to you. Here's how you're going to live. This is your new command. You only have one rule. You had 613 in the Old Covenant. Guess what? They're all gone. You have one command now. You just love one another the way I've loved you. You just treat one another, not the way you want to be treated, but the way I have treated you. And don't forget, the very next day, Jesus demonstrated that in a way that just drove this into their heart and they could never escape it. He demonstrated it in such a way that it took their breath away because he gave his breath away on a Roman cross. And they never had any ambiguity or confusion around what did Jesus mean by loving people the way he loved us? No, the way he loved them was crystal clear. And this was the anchor. This was the foundation from which followers of Jesus lived their lives throughout the rest of the first century. Now, when you read some of Paul's letters, one of the, uh, one of the issues that people sometimes have is they say, well, it just feels like Paul still gives a lot of rules. He says, you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do this, and make sure you do this, and it just feels like a lot of commands. But here's what you have to understand. This will give you a whole new perspective on reading Paul's writings. Paul doesn't give any more rules All Paul does in his writings is he gives explanations. If you read Paul's writings, in almost every writing, he begins by explaining this foundational principle of what Jesus did, of this new covenant, and this command to love one another the way Jesus has loved us. And then he says, let me show you what this looks like. And he just gives example after example after example of how to apply this in different situations. I want to show you a couple of them real quickly. Uh, There's some that are found... In a letter Paul wrote to Christians in Ephesus. In Ephesus chapter 5, for instance, he wrote this. Submit to one another. 
The word submit just simply means to put the interests, needs, and desires of somebody else before your own. So Paul's, imagine this. He's writing to these Christians. And he's saying, okay, here's how you live this out. Your job is to treat anybody else who's in the room with you as if they're more important than you are. Your job is, in any relationship, to defer to the interest of the other person. You should submit to one another. Now imagine you're getting this. What's your first thought going to be? The same as mine. You're going to begin to think about the people in your life that Paul's saying you should submit to, and some of them you're going to nod your head and go, well, yeah, that's a good relationship, and they're a good person, and I don't feel threatened to do that. And then there are others where you go, absolutely not. There's no way I'm submitting. They don't deserve to be submitted to. I'll submit to them, they'll take advantage of me. There's no way I'm going to submit. To which Paul would say to you, well, you don't submit to them because they deserve to be submitted to. He says you should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is coming back to this new covenant command. He's saying you ought to submit to one another, not because that's what the other person deserves. You do it because your heavenly father sent his son who chose to submit to you and put your interests and needs before his own, even when you didn't deserve it and I didn't deserve it. And if Jesus was willing to submit to you, then how can we resist submitting to one another? It's an entirely different motivation for why we relate the way that we relate with each other. One chapter before, he gave another example in this letter. He says, you should be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. To which, again, we think of some people and go, well, yeah, I should be kind to them, and they deserve for me to be compassionate and Absolutely, I'm going to forgive them because they've got a long track record with me in history and I know they care and it was, you know, they didn't mean to. We, we've got a lot of people that it seems pretty easy to forgive. But then you're like me. You've got some people in your life that are not so easy to forgive, are they? You've got some people in your life that if you were honest, you're still carrying around some bitterness and resentment and a grudge against them. If you were honest, there's still some issues between you and them. You refuse to forgive, and the reason you refuse to forgive is, and I get this, you would say, you don't understand if I could just tell you my story. If I could just explain to you what they did. If I could just explain the lengths at which they went to hurt me. There's no way they deserve forgiveness. I'm never going to offer that. To which Paul would look at you and say, okay, I get it, I get it. But your motivation for forgiving, the place from which you forgive is not based on whether they deserve it or not, whether they're repentant or not, whether they express remorse over what they did to you or not. He says, you ought to be kind and compassionate and forgive each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. He said, can I just remind you, this is what Jesus did for you. And remember, he said, you should love one another the way he has loved you. Well, how did he love you? He offered forgiveness to you when you didn't deserve it. He offered forgiveness to you before you ever asked for it. So Paul's argument is simply this. You have no other path to take as a follower of Jesus than to offer forgiveness. Not because they deserve forgiveness, but because of what your heavenly Father has done for you. And as recipients of extraordinarily freely given forgiveness, you should offer extraordinary freely given forgiveness in return. In another letter, one that he wrote to Christians in Philippi, he said this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Well, what kind of mindset was that? You can read the rest of this for yourself, but he spells it out really clearly. He says, you're not above Jesus, so you ought to treat one another and approach one another the same way Jesus approached you. 
And the way he approached you was he didn't power up, he powered down. The way Jesus approached you is he didn't show up demanding that he be served, even though he had every right to. He showed up as a servant. He showed up and humbled himself and put you before him. He showed up and he took the power that he had and he didn't use it for his own benefit. He used it for the benefit of everybody around him. And so Paul's argument and Paul's case is in every single relationship. The ones where people deserve it and the ones where they don't. This is your role. This is my role if we're a follower of Jesus. That we are to treat those people with the same attitude and approach that Jesus has demonstrated towards us. So if you had the opportunity to ask Paul, okay, Paul, will you talk about being truthful? In a lot of your letters, you talk about being truthful. Why should we be truthful? You know what Paul would tell you? I'll tell you what he wouldn't say. He didn't say it in a single one of his letters. At no point did Paul say, you ought to be truthful towards other people because it's in the Old Covenant. It's one of the Big Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie. That's why you should be truthful. He never once says that. Paul says, you ought to be truthful Because lying is not loving to the person you're lying to. You ought to be truthful because you can't have the kind of relationship that Jesus wants you to have with others if it's a relationship based on mistrust. And a lack of integrity, lying, it breaks trust. Trust is the foundation for any healthy relationship. So anytime you lie, anytime you're not fully honest, anytime you don't have integrity with someone, you're not being loving to the person that you're lying to. Well, Paul, what about this? Paul wrote about sexual behaviors a lot. Why would you write so much about that, Paul? Because Paul said sex is for married people, not mature people. And you say, Paul, why why would you say all of that? You're just trying to control people's behaviors and choices. and That seems so antiquated and outdated. Well, there was far deeper sexual practices going on in the first century than now. Paul would say, no, 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 I'm not trying to do any of that. This doesn't benefit me in any way. Let me tell you why I'm writing this. Paul would say, I'm not writing this because in the Old Covenant it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. That is not the basis for why you shouldn't do this. It's not about a rule. It's about Jesus' New Covenant command for you. And Paul would make the case, because he did in his writings, that when you step out of line of God's design sexually, that what you end up doing is you create regret or future regret in the life of the person that you've engaged with sexually that you actually end up being unloving towards four different people. Even if it's consensual and everybody's all for it at the moment, in the long run, you're unloving towards yourself. Paul said, you hurt yourself. And you end up with future regret. And the person that you engaged with, they end up with future regret. It's unloving to them. And then Paul would make the case it's unloving to your spouse or your future spouse, to their spouse or their future spouse. So the reason that you stay in line with God's design sexually is simple. It's because it's the most loving thing to do. Not because there's some command that says, thou shalt not commit adultery. We could go on and on. Gossip, cheating, stealing, you name it. Anything Paul talks about in his letter, if you start to read these through this framework, you will see. It's just one example after another of, you shouldn't engage in that behavior because it's not the loving thing to do. You should engage in that behavior because it's what love requires of you. This is where Paul, if he were here today, he would tell you, you should take your application cues. How do I live my life? How do I parent? How do I manage this relationship? What, what, should I, what kind of employee should I be? What kind of boss should I be or supervisor? What kind of student? You name any area. Paul would say, you take your application cues. 
from Jesus' new covenant command. You just ask yourself, what does love require me in light of how Jesus has loved me? And then go do that. And you'll be perfectly fine. Now, before we move on, just real quickly, can you imagine, can you imagine how different our world would be? Can you imagine how differently those of us who are Christians would be viewed if we actually lived this out with some level of consistency? Because let's be honest, we don't very often. You talk about Christianity in general, this is not what we are primarily known for, which is so odd because it was the one thing Jesus was known for. And somehow we have drifted so far that we have made it all about what we believe and, you know, theology and set up barriers and obstacles and you have to behave a certain way and believe a certain way to be a part of us. And none of that was there early on. They fought against that constantly. Can you imagine how differently it would be if, if those of us who are Christians just live by this one ethic, live by this one question, live by this one command? I'll tell you what would happen employers around our community, whether they believed in what we believed or not, they would want to have as many Christians on their team as possible because they would know those are people who are trustworthy, they're dependable, they give more than they get. I never have to worry about them stealing or cheating in any way. And they're the most responsible people I have. They're the hardest working people on the team. There would be people who would say, I hope my son or my daughter marries one of them. Because every Christian marriage I look at, it's like a submission competition. These Christians just go out of their way to try to outserve one another, outsubmit to one another. They're constantly putting the needs and interests of other people before their own. They just have the most extraordinary marriages. I, I wish my son or daughter would be a part of a marriage like that, or I wish I could be a part of a marriage like that. It would change the, you know, the way people date. People would want to date Christians for the simple fact that I don't have to worry. They're going to respect and value and show dignity and worth towards me in ways that nobody else does. It would change the way we parent. It would change the way we interact with people. It would change the kind of students we were. I mean, this would change everything if we were just more consistent. None of us are perfect, but if we were just more consistent at living this simple ethic out every single day. Well, the Apostle Paul stressed this, and he fought for this all through the first century. As a matter of fact, he did it to the point that when there was a clash between Jewish followers of Jesus who said, no, 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 they, we, we still got to keep some of this old covenant stuff. These non-Jewish people, they got to follow the old covenant plus put their trust in Jesus. Paul went to bat for the Gentile people and said, that old covenant thing is gone. If you read Acts 15, you'll discover that at the end of this, the leaders of the early church said, you're right, Paul, you're right. It's just about this one new covenant command now. We're not going to require any Gentile who follows Jesus to try to follow the Old Covenant. We can't even follow the Old Covenant. Why would we ask them to do it? The Old Covenant is finished. It's been completed. Paul fought for this. And if those of us who are followers of Jesus would just re-engage with it and do what love requires us to do, it would transform our communities. Because people may resist what we believe, but they will never resist us treating them with love. So, Paul made some significant contributions. He wrote part of the Bible. Paul explains the relationship between the Old Covenant, the Jewish Scriptures, and Jesus' New Covenant command. And then there's one other extraordinary contribution he makes, and I just want to touch on it quickly. Paul authenticates the most important event recorded in the New Testament documents. Now, 
This is about as, as you know, in the future, a teaser as you can get. But we're going to talk more about this on Easter. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now. But I want to explain this from a couple of different perspectives. If you've ever had trouble, you have a friend who has difficulty believing in the resurrection. Believing that Jesus died and actually walked back out of a tomb on his own power. I get that. But I'm telling you, if you've had questions or skepticism about it, you've got to dig into the Apostle Paul because he authenticates the resurrection like nobody else. First of all, he authenticates it with his extraordinary life change. And I don't want to go into all this today. It's a you know, topic for another time. But Paul goes from being the most ardent critic and enemy of the message of Jesus to being its, most, uh, its largest, biggest advocate in a moment. It is very, very hard to explain away the sudden, in a moment, 180 life change that Paul experienced, apart from the fact that he saw Jesus for himself. You can dig into that on your own, but you can't really come up with another credible explanation for why Paul changed his pursuit and why Paul changed his direction other than that. But I want to tell you the other reason that Paul authenticates this in such a powerful way. Paul wrote a letter to Corinthians, and we've read part of it today, called 1 Corinthians. He actually wrote two that we still have. But in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians was written about 20 years after the resurrection. Think about this. 20 years, just two decades after the resurrection. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and in his letter, Paul authenticates and explains the resurrection. Paul not only says that Jesus came out of the tomb, Paul gives a list of names of the people who saw him alive after he had died. And then Paul explains how this belief in the resurrection has been, become the central tenet of the early church. They had actually created a, a saying, if you will, that affirmed this belief and this understanding that Jesus had come back to life. Just 20 years after. Now, the reason that's so important is because, one, that means that the early church from the very beginning held to this notion, and it was the foundation for everything they did, that Jesus had risen from the dead. But it also is important for this reason. You can't, and there's no legend that can develop. It's impossible. There's no legend that can develop in a 20-year period. Because everybody who was alive then is, for the most part, still alive now. So imagine that, you know, in our context, and it's not been quite 20 years, but it's close, Imagine, and this happens sometimes actually, if somebody pops up and begins to make a case for why 9-11 really didn't happen in America. And they begin to say, oh, it's just a legend that grew up and it's a conspiracy and on and on and on. 9-11 really didn't happen. When, those, when, when people say that stuff, we dismiss them as crazy, don't we? I mean, it's just me. We're not even giving any thought to that. Why? Because there are so many of us who were alive when 9-11 happened and we saw it with our own eyes. And even if you weren't alive then, you can go and talk to thousands of people who were alive and saw it with their own eyes. So there's no credibility to something like that. You can't create a legend or, you know, recreate a story in 20 years. And they couldn't make up this story of the resurrection and get people to believe it in 20 years either. So there's nothing more powerful. This is the earliest document that we have, as far as we know, after the life of Jesus. There's nothing more powerful than looking at Corinthians as Paul explains the resurrection and all the people who saw it. And it was his way of saying, just go ask him. You can fact check it. And it's written 20 years or less after Jesus died and rose again. It is compelling, compelling evidence 
that from the very beginning, the whole reason they were willing to change their behavior, go a different direction, and ultimately risk their lives is because something extraordinary happened. So, not only did Paul write some of this correspondence, you had some other people who were writing things. You had Peter. He wrote a couple letters. You had James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote a document. You have Jude. You had John, who wrote some other documents. And as we've talked about, these early followers of Jesus would take these copies and they treated them as so valuable and reliable. They were sacred and inspired scripture to them. And so they would protect them and they would copy them and they would pass them on. They continued to collect and protect and collect and protect and collect and protect because they wanted to pass it on to the next generation. In some cases, at the expense of their own lives. And then you fast forward to the 4th century, the 300s. And something remarkable happens. Constantine, the Roman emperor, you know this. Constantine, the Roman emperor, lifts the religious ban on Christianity. And suddenly, all of these Christian scholars who have been working in the shadows are able to come out into the light. And they gather, and they're able to work publicly, and they're able to bring these copies that have been passed down generation to generation. And they all bring them and collect them together, and they begin to work through them and sift through them. And by the end of the 4th century... They have placed them all together, the four accounts of Jesus' life, the Jewish scriptures, and all of this correspondence from Paul and Peter and James. They have collected it, protected it, and put it all together in one book that by around 388, they're calling, for the first time ever, the Bible. And in irony of all ironies, the same Roman Empire that was partly responsible for the death of Jesus has now facilitated the collection, and the formation of the Bible as we know it today. And that's the story of how we got the Bible. Now, here's what I'll wrap up with. There's one thing I would love for you to know, and there's one thing I would love for you to do coming out of this series. So let me start with what I want you to know. It's simply this. That Christianity was created by an event, the resurrection, that launched a movement that produced documents that were collected and protected and eventually bound together in a book. In other words, the Bible didn't create Christianity. Christianity, particularly the resurrection, is the reason we have the Bible. If there had been no resurrection, there would be no Bible as we know it today. Now, the reason I bring that up is because you may have some issues with certain parts of the Bible. Or you may know people who talk about, ah, they're cynical about this and they're cynical about that. That has no impact on our faith whatsoever. Because the foundation of our faith is not the Bible. And even though we believe, even though I believe like those early followers of Jesus, that it's all accurate and true. Even if it's proven that some part of it is not accurate and true, our faith doesn't fall apart because it's not built on the foundation of the Bible. The Bible didn't create Christianity. It's built on the resurrection. It's built on this event, something extraordinary that happened that created a flurry of activity that led to documents being produced and people writing accounts that were eventually collected and protected and bound in a book. And for years, there were very limited copies of this until the printing press came along, and then suddenly everyone had access, finally, to these extraordinary writings. So I just hope you remember this, that the foundation of our faith is not the Bible. 
the foundation of our faith is this event called the resurrection. And so here's what I want you to do with it. It's real simple. I want you to ask yourself a question. Not am I at peace with everything in the Bible. I hope you will wrestle with a different question. Am I at peace with the God who sent his son to die and rise again for my sins? That is central to the Christian faith. And you know where you discover Jesus? You discover him in these extraordinary documents, in these extraordinary accounts of his life, and in these amazing writings of correspondence from Paul and James and Jude and John and Peter and others. So I hope you'll wrestle through that question, and then I hope you will try something, that you will make it a habit to read a little bit of these writings every day Because this is where you discover Jesus. This is where you discover how much God really loves you. This is where you discover this extraordinary truth of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and love being shown and offered to all of us. And you discover it from the very people who were there when Jesus introduced this new covenant command and when he died and rose again. From the time I was about 12 on, There haven't been very many mornings I haven't started by reading a little bit of those writings. I don't think anything has shaped my life more than that. I'm telling you, it'll have a profound impact on you. If you'll just develop the habit of reading a little bit of it every day, and you will discover that Jesus died and was buried. He was raised and was seen. But it was all because of his love for you and me. That is the story of the Bible. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for preserving these documents. It's extraordinary to think that we're able to read the writings of people like Paul who lived 2,000 years ago, people who were eyewitnesses to everything that transpired and took place. Thank you that we're able to get into the mind of someone like the Apostle Paul who understood the old covenant so well and the relationship between it and this new command that Jesus introduced. Thank you for the guidance and the wisdom that's found in these writings. Thank you for inspiring these people to do this. And my prayer would simply be that you would move us, no matter what we think of the Bible or where we stand with it, that you would move us just to engage with it, to read it, to explore it for ourselves. Because in the middle of doing that, we meet you. And we discover how much you care about us. And it really does change everything. We're so grateful for Jesus and what he did. Most of all, that he was willing to come and communicate and to demonstrate to us not just what you're like, but how you feel about us. As he proved that on the cross. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.